congregation. All right. We don't have a clock on the back wall here. All right. There you go. I uh, I used to be involved in a rescue mission in Portland, Oregon, and. Um, we would uh, preach to them before uh, we served a meal to them. And, and uh, one minute before the meal, every one of them would start going like that, smacking their, smacking their, uh, their watch there. Maybe, maybe some of you could do that. I don't know. Help me remember. Um, it's, uh, it's good to have Den- Dennis and Roberta Lucas from Union with us this morning. Thank you for being with us. Friends of, friends of you folks, huh? Good. <laughs> Too late now, I guess. <laughs> Fantastic. Living here in Union. Well, good. Good to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being with us. <clears throat> it's a little tight up here to find my notes here, so bear with me. <clears throat> Maybe some of you remember this event on June 27, 1976. Armed operatives for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised 12 crew members of an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers, hijacking it to a destination unknown. The plane was headed for Central Africa, where it landed under uh, the uh, 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 in Uganda under President uh, Idi Amin. And there remained secure at the airport where the hijackers spent seven days preparing for their next move. The hijackers, it seemed like, seemed to be in the driver's seat of this particular operation. But unknown to many, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, Israel, three Israeli C-130 Hercules transporters secretly boarded a deadly force of Israeli commandos who had been specially trained to infiltrate the hijacker stations and within hours attacked the airport that had been um, uh, really by President Amin there in Uganda. He had kind of sheltered these hijackers there. They attacked the airport under cover of darkness. In less than one hour, 60 minutes, these Israeli commandos rushed the old terminal, they gunned down the hijackers, and they rescued 110 of the 113 hostages. The next day, July 4th, Israel's premier, Yitzhak Rabin, triumphantly declared the mission, quote, will become a legend, end of quote, which it surely has. In fact, it's used as uh, a a platform for training for special forces around the world today and anti-terrorist troops. Israel's resolve in stealth and liberating her people is admired by her friends and begrudged by her enemies even today. But that same ingenuity and that same resolve is really nothing new because in Genesis chapter 14, that same quality can be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation and their patriarch, Abraham. You see, back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, he had a nephew named Lot, and Lot was taken captive by one of the enemy uh, uh, kings in the area. And the kidnappers in, 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 who took Lot were, were a coalition of four Canaanite kings, headed by King Kedor Larimer, who attacked in the Transjordan, and, and uh, they, they uh, defeated some of the city-states of Sodom uh, and her neighbors and carried off a large number of hostages, and Lot was one of those in that group. You can read that in Genesis uh, 14, verses 5 to 12. Abraham 
recruited 318 trained men, it says in Genesis 14 and verse 4. These must have been your your proto-commandos here from his own household. And he took off in hot pursuit and he closed in on the kidnapper somewhere close to Damascus. And there under the cover of night, he deployed his small forces in a surprise attack against four kings and their armies. And his troops, um, uh, riding uh, camels and horses, they bore down on the hijackers and their hostages. And uh, in that moonlight there, um, the four kings were put to flight and the hostages were rescued, a lot in particular. What happens after that is sets the stage for our passage in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Because in Genesis chapter 14, and I'll have you turn there, put a finger in chapter uh, 7. In Genesis chapter 14, an individual emerges on the scene who uh, we haven't been told about before in the Bible. And he's a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 says, this is after that situation I just read to you. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedalomor and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him. He, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abraham, gave him tithes, or a tenth, of all the spoils that he had taken. Tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Give me the the people that you took and keep the spoil of the war to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, and your Eshcol and Mamre. Let them take their portion. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus Christ and the supremacy of Jesus Christ? That's what we want to chip away at today. And as we come into um, this, this study here in, in, our, in our consecutive uh, study of the book of Hebrews here, I want you to know that there's a strong temptation for a speaker and a pastor uh, to um, just brush over this. But to do so would be to do and commit the very thing that the writer of Hebrews says shouldn't be done. In fact, if you look in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says there is a slight problem with the audience he's writing to. And the problem is, he wants to tell them more about who, uh, about how the priesthood of this character in Genesis, Melchizedek, Matters for their salvation, but he can't. But he's but he's held back by their sluggishness. They don't want to learn. And, I, and I, as I was thinking about this passage here, I, I I really began to think that we all need to get to a point where we understand the basics of Christianity. And I hope you're there. If you're not, that's why I exist. <laughs> um. To understand the basis of Christianity. 
And I would say probably a large percentage of you understand the basics of Christianity, the basics of the doctrines, foundations of the faith. But the next step, the next step is understanding how they relate to each other. And what are the underlying doctrines that make this true? And that's what we have here. All of us, I would think that all of us understand that the fact that Jesus Christ has three offices, prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet who declared the word of God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is a priest who is the, who is the uh, go-between between God and man. All of us should understand those basic truths of Christianity. And so we understand one particular aspect of those three, the priesthood of, Christi- the priesthood of Christ. But do you know why he's the priest? He's the perfect priest. It's not just because of his sacrifice. If you were a Jew, you understood that the priesthood came through the Levites. And specifically, a certain family of the Levites, Aaron. Jesus had no relationship to Aaron in his genealogy. In fact, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah. So how does he, in your understanding as a Hebrew, as a Jew, how is he a legitimate priest of God is the question here. And so, knowing this truth, that Jesus is a forever priest, and knowing that there is a verse in Psalm 110 that talks about a forever priest, I believe the writer of Hebrews, divinely inspired, began to contemplate that. And as he thought about that Psalm 110 that we read in verse 4, that says the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, A name that has never been shown up in the Old Testament before and doesn't show up again until Hebrews. And he says, "Uh uh-huh. Let's go look back in Genesis 14. What is unique about this Melchizedek that God would say about the Messiah in Psalm 110? He was a priest forever after the order of this man. And he uses the unpacking of that idea and contemplation and meditating on that thought here to give us the very words of God why Jesus is the perfect priest. Now in the verses of Hebrews chapter 7 that follow verse 11 and on, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today, verse 11 and on, those are wonderful verses that we probably um, uh, uh, solidify in our minds why Jesus is such a wonderful high priest. But verses 1 through 10 is the, is the foundation that it stands on. Why could Jesus be the high priest? And why, uh, even though he wasn't descended after Aaron, he could be in this position? Uh, the, the, the audience wanted to know, and the writer tells us that. So, it's a, it's a real temptation to just pass over some of these things here. But we would be doing the very thing that the writer of Hebrews said, I don't want to do. That you need to understand. You need to get to a point to where you understand. So work with me here this morning. Labor with me. Think. You've got to think this morning. Alright? Um, uh, put, your, put, your, put your minds in gear. And we're going to think through the passage here of what the author is saying about why Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's going to be a little difficult because none of us here probably, there might be some, are, are Jewish. There might be some Jewish people in here. But there's probably very few who grew up 
in Judaism, like these people, the audience of the book of Hebrews, and understood the law and its requirements and all that, had that um, uh, in, their, in their understanding. It's a little hard for us to grasp as people on the outside, but I want you to understand that if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. The point of this passage is to say that Jesus Christ as a high priest is legitimate. And he's not only legitimate, even though he's not of the tribe of the tribe of Levi or a descendant of Aaron, he is superior. He's superior, not because of just what he did on the cross, but because of this superior order, priesthood order of Melchizedek. Now, this has been introduced to us in chapter 5 and verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoting from Psalm 110. So so I've been in this thought process here for a while. It's uh, repeated again in chapter 5 and verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 6 and verse 20, whether the forerunner is forced enter even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What I want you to see this morning in chapter 7 is there is a description of this mysterious character, Melchizedek. Who is this person, Melchizedek? Look in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He describes this person, Melchizedek. He basically retells the history of Genesis 14 that I told, uh, the slaughter of the kings, and where Abraham comes out, and, and Melchizedek, this character, shows up on the scene here, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham offers him the tenth of the spoils that he took. That's verse 1. But verse 2 says, First, being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. The author here says, let's think about his name, Melchizedek. The Hebrew word for king is Melech. The Hebrew word for righteousness is Zedek. So his name means king of righteousness, Melech. Zedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. And he also makes the observation that in Genesis we're told that he was a king of a place called Salem. Now, what you have to understand in those days, it wasn't like kings of countries, it was more like kings of city-states. Little city-states everywhere. And he was a king of this particular city. It was a king called Salem. Salem is the Hebrew word shalom, means peace. So that's why in verse 2 he says, by interpretation or translation, is what what that word means, he is called the king of righteousness, Zedek, and he's called the king of peace, because he's the king of Salem. That's his explanation here. By the way, um, Salem there was a real place, and it still is a real place, and it's a place we call Jerusalem today. In fact, if you look in Psalm 76, verse 2, um, Jerusalem is called Salem. Jerusalem, 
Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. Uh, it's, a, it's a city of, uh, supposed to be the city of peace. And this was Jerusalem um, before it was Jerusalem. Salem was Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. Um, this, by the way, is not too long after the flood. It wouldn't be too long after the flood. Do you remember that when God wiped out the earth's population, except for Noah's population, he instructed Noah to walk in the ways of the Lord. And he gave him specific instruction. And by this time in history, a few hundred years after the flood here, um, uh, this, this character Melchizedek here is on the scene, and he is probably the one who uh, is, is a centerpiece of the worship of God in that period of time after the flood. Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Well, verse 3 tells us something curious about him. Verse 3 says this. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. The writer of Hebrews says this, basically. As I look into that story in Genesis chapter 14, I don't find a record of his ancestry, and I don't find a record of his death. I don't find his genealogy here. Um, But he's a type, he's a picture of Christ. He's made made like unto the Son of God. And he abides a priest continually. There's no end of his priesthood that's mentioned in Scripture, is what he's saying. Um, And so some of kind of come to the conclusion that this must be that this must be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ um, in the Old Testament. In other words, an appearance of Jesus Christ before he comes as a baby um, in, uh, in, 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 the, in the Gospels. Because you know Jesus Christ is God. He always existed. And I don't agree with that for a few reasons. I'll share, share, share a few reasons here. Um, first of all, this is an actual historical king who was a resident of Salem. You see, in, a, in, a, in an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, um, like when Abram met those three there in the plain and, and other appearances, um, they're there for a very short time and then and go on. This is an individual here, though, who is a res- he's the king of Salem. He has a position in a real, literal city. King of Salem. He's a permanent resident. He's an actual historical king who's there for a while, you know, his whole life. Um, but also, you might notice that verse 3 says he was made like unto the Son of God. Made like unto the Son of God. He is, he is an illustration of Christ. And if... This is Christ, if Melchizedek is Christ, then that kind of blows away the whole idea of an illustration of Christ. It turns the argument upside down. What's the point of the author's argument? So how do we understand verse 3 then? I believe what he's saying is this. Hebrews 1.10 verse 4 says he's a priest forever. Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Genesis lists this Melchizedek guy, and in Genesis we don't have a record of his, his, his uh, ancestries, and we don't have a record of, of his death. Just like we don't have a record of the other kings there who were with, um, who were with Abraham, of their beginnings or their death. And so what he's saying here is this. This 
there is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek that is very different than the priest's order of Aaron. How so? Well, every priest in Israel's history had to prove their genealogy. I couldn't show up to the temple one day and say, Hey, I'd like a job today as, as a priest in the temple. You know why? Because I had to prove my genealogical records. Go with me if you could find it. The book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, chapter 2. This isn't the only place where you see it, but here's a, here's where here's a situation where this idea is worked out. Ezra chapter 2, all the way at the end of the book of Ezra, verse 62. Ezra 2, verse 62. This is after the exile. Israel had been exiled. And uh, uh, they were allowed, there was a portion of them that were allowed to return to their homeland from Babylon and Persia. And they wanted to reinstate the kingdom of Israel here. But they knew they had to follow God's requirements. And Ezra 2, verse 62, says this. List some people, and it says, These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. What he's saying there is there's a few people who, uh, they probably really were, descendants of Aaron and Levi. And they wanted to serve as priests in this new temple that would have been uh, rebuilt. The second temple. But the requirement said, okay, show us in the list of genealogies your ancestors. And they couldn't do it. So they were not allowed to be priests. They were not allowed to serve in the priesthood. Because Aaron's priesthood was based on that premise. Based on your parents. It's based on your genealogy. Um, now there is no mention of where Melchizedek's priesthood came from. It just states, here's the fact, he's a priest. Aaron's priesthood needed to have a genealogy. But you could, could you see a problem with that? Could you see a problem with that? If all you have to do to be a priest is... Matters who your parents were? Did you see a problem with that? Because imagine, you lived in the time of Eli in the book of Samuel. And you had his two sons serving as priests, Hophni and Phinehas. Who the Bible says were fornicating with some of the women who come in the temple. And they were also cheating the, cheating, uh, the tabernacle. And also cheating, uh, skimming off some of the offerings. You could see, there's something wrong with that, right? But Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 24 says, this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. There's something different about Jesus' priesthood, and it's because he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So what is, what is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, this situation that happened with Abraham and Melchizedek happened around 2100 B.C., all right? The Bible has, doesn't record Melchizedek's family line. And there are only three little verses there, and then Psalm 110 that talks about him. 900 B.C., 1,200 years later, David, in Psalm 110, says about the Messiah in verse 4 that he's going to be a priest after the order of this guy Melchizedek. 1,100 years later, we have the book of Hebrews, who says this is an ongoing 
priesthood. He makes that conclusion. This is an ongoing priesthood. And his point is this. Melchizedek pictures Jesus as God. No beginning and no end. Melchizedek is an analogy of who Jesus is. No beginning, no end. He's a priest. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's his point in verses 1 through 3 that becomes more obvious in verses 4 through 10. So I'd like you to see now why Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek is better than Aaron's order. First is this. He's superior because, verse 4, Abraham, the father of Israel, the patriarch of Israel, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to this guy, Melchizedek. Look, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils to this guy Melchizedek, which shows, the writer is saying, that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, Abraham was lifted high on a pedestal, wasn't he? He's the father of the Hebrew nation. And the writer here is saying, but he gave something to someone in a higher position than him. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. The second reason is in verses 5 and 6. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, this is Israel's normal priesthood through Aaron, who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. The Levites were supposed to go to the nation and you were supposed to give a tithe of everything you had. More than your money, by the way. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, Melchizedek was not a Jew, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Here's the second reason. The Levites operated according to the law. Okay? Abraham preceded the law. Moses' law came later. All right? Abraham operates according to the promise, the promise of God. Which if you read Galatians chapter 3, Paul says superior to the law. The promise, the age of promise. If you look in verse 19, it explains a little bit more about this. Chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. In verse 11 and 12. He's saying that Moses' law, that the Levitical priesthood operated under, was inferior. It was inferior. Verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed... There is made of necessity a change also of the law. In other words, if it was necessary for a new priesthood, then it's necessary that the law goes away, changes. So his point is, the Levites operated according to the law, but Abraham operated according to something superior, the promise. It trumped the establishment. The law was a temporary establishment. 
It was not God's long-term plan. And the Levites served under it. But Abraham served under God's promise to him that he would make a great nation. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So there is a superiority there. The third reason is in verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Do you remember what the scripture said? It says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham after he came out with the spoils of the war. There. Here's the, here's the third principle. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, that might not strike you as that interesting, but you remember, um, even in the early uh, Israel's early history, we've been going through the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. We finished it last week. But you remember situations where um, Isaac blessed his sons. But there was a problem with that because there was a manipulating mother who pushed Jacob to be the one blessed, who God said should have been the one blessed anyway. And she deceives Isaac, who's blind, and he puts the family blessing on his son Jacob. Later on, at the end of Genesis, Jacob is there with his, with his, with his twelve sons. And he gives them all blessings. And he, and he gives particular things and prophecies about their lives that are going to become true throughout the tribes of Israel. That's this idea of blessing. And the Bible here says that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. If you bless somebody in the Old Testament, it means you were their superior. You were their superior. Again, what's the big deal about that? Israel understood Abraham as being the top dog. He was the superior. But the Bible says a Gentile, Melchizedek, is the one who blessed Abraham. So this, this point here, number three, is Melchizedek, he's is above Abraham. And Abraham, he's already said, is above the Levites because the Levites were under the law. And so, if you draw the logic there... If Melchizedek is above Abraham, and Abraham is above the Levites, then Melchizedek is above the Levites. Levites. So that's his point. Fourth, verse 8. And here, men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. In other words, we don't... God didn't write in Scripture the time when Melchizedek died. And so the author here is saying um, that uh, there's not a record in Scripture of Melchizedek uh, dying. So you kind of have a, a perpetual um, uh, continuation of his life in a certain sense here. And so what he's saying here, in this way, Melchizedek's ministry is ongoing. Every Levitical priest died. From Aaron to, in the New Testament, Caiaphas, they died. That's the, but the witness of Scripture is not that of, uh, is not the same uh, to Melchizedek. There's, there's not a record of his death like there is of the others. Verse 23, look in chapter 7. Talk about Levite priests, says, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Every one of them just served their lifetime, then they died. Here's the fifth reason, verses 9 and 10. And as they may say so, he says, if I can just throw this out there at you guys, he says, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. 
What he's saying is this. When Abraham paid that tenth of all the spoils of this guy Melchizedek, you could say in a sense that Levi did. Because Levi would be a descendant of, the, of, of Abraham. And Levi would have been in the, in the, in the, in the, the scripture says, in his loins, in seed form uh, there. Uh, Abraham would represent his, his, his uh, generation that would come after him. And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Verse 10 says, For he, Levi, was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What's he saying? <clears throat> um, Levi is inferior. The Levi priesthood is inferior because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was a direct ancestor. Remember, if Abraham paid tithes as a lesser to the greater Melchizedek, then how much more is Levi a lesser to the greater Melchizedek? You follow, I hope you follow the logic here. If not, it's okay. Uh, you, 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 um, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no quiz on Melchizedek when you walk through heaven's door here. But it's important to understand the reason here for, 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 for the word of God. That's obviously put this here for a reason here. What does this mean to us? Well, that's what's going to be unpacked in the following verses. But here's a couple things that I think you could take from this passage here. I want you to jump back to verse 2. Alright. Look in verse 2 again. Remember, he kind of stops and says, let's pick apart Melchizedek's name. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness, and his title was the king of Salem, Salem, peace. This is going to come out later here, and I think it's a theme you see in scripture. But I say at the very least we can understand this. Jesus Christ is king. He is king. Lord of lords. He is absolute sovereign ruler. King. If Melchizedek was called king, Jesus Christ, who is the true and better fulfillment of Melchizedek, is king. Now, living in a, in, a, in a republic, it's a little hard for us to grasp the concept of king. But the idea of king means he is absolute master. Absolute master. I am his subject. His word governs me. Jesus is king. Christ is king. But not only that, he's the king of what? Righteousness. He's also the king of peace. But you know why he's the king of righteousness? Because the truth that Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness must precede the truth that Jesus Christ is the king of peace. What do we, what do we mean by that? Remember what Paul says about Jesus' righteousness and justification that leads to peace? He says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, by a firm reliance on who Jesus is, justified, declared righteous, on the basis of that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what he's saying here? Jesus Christ is king of righteousness. 
Christ, who is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is king of righteousness. He is king of peace. But Melchizedek could never make men righteous. He could never make men have peace with God. He was only a type. But Jesus, the grand, the true Melchizedek priest and king, gives righteousness and peace. He is king. He's resurrected king. They mocked him on the cross saying, yeah, you're the king of the Jews. But he was the king, and not of the Jews, but the king of all creation. And he's the king of righteousness. Which means, 1 John 2 says, we have an advocate, a mediator. And this advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. What does that mean? Perfectly pure, holy Son of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, in other words, is the essence of what righteousness is. God wanted to display His righteousness to the world that He's always had. And God displayed His righteousness to the world in the person of His Son. Jesus is the sum of righteousness. He's the source of righteousness. But it's not like He just lived as a model of righteousness. He is a king who bestows righteousness. Romans 3 talks about a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus is our righteousness. He is the mediator. He is the deliverer of righteousness. He is our Melchizedekian priest who prays for the working out of his righteousness and his redeemed people as well. And he is a king forever after the war of Melchizedek who is called the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Which leads us to point three. It's very obvious He's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah, right? But his peace follows the gift of righteousness. We don't have peace without Jesus' righteousness. His peace doesn't come before his righteousness. It's always righteousness and then peace. Jesus Christ did what we could not do. Jesus Christ paid the debt we could not pay. Jesus Christ offers us his righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we, when we receive that, we become the righteousness, very righteousness of God. But on the basis of that, we have peace. And that is what this world does not have, does it? Go around every home in this area, and if you were to, if there were people were to open up to you and listen, and you were able to listen, you would find out the thing they do not have is peace. He is peace. He is the essence and sum and source of all peace. There is no peace without him. And he's also the bestower of peace, just like he was the bestower of righteousness. Do you remember when he came and arrived on the earth and the angel said, Peace, honor, and goodwill to men, in Luke 2.14. 
On the very evening before his life expires on the cross, the very evening when he's with his disciples, one of the last things he says with them is, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And after his resurrection in John 20, when he returns to his disciples, he breathes on them and he says, Peace be with you. And at the beginning of just about every one of the letters in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Grace, God's righteousness, His strength imparted to you, and peace. He can't say that to everybody, can he? But he can say that to those who are in Christ. Grace and peace. And to those who are without Christ, we can say, God offers you His grace and peace. And now, as our eternal peace... He wants us to grow in peace. Do you know that? In a world where we're getting pricked and prodded and pressured and pinched all around, you know what doesn't come out of us enough? Peace. We add to the chaos, right? But growth in Christ and the fruit of the Spirit is a peace in the storm. A peace in the storm. And as our mediator and eternal high priest, Jesus is praying for peace right now. And I'm not talking about a worldly peace. I'm talking about a godly peace through the righteousness of Christ. And folks, these two concepts, Jesus Jesus is king of righteousness and Jesus is king of peace, kissed and met in the person of Jesus. And again, as you read the beginning of the letters here in the New Testament, you will see that kiss given to each one of his children grace and peace now for a Jewish church in the book of Hebrews that was bobbing on the storms of, a, of the first century they needed to understand that an eternal Melchizedekian king and priest had secured both their righteousness and their peace and has devoted on the basis of Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, continual prayer as a high priest for the working out of these qualities in their lives. And this means they can survive the storms. But they had to understand that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that was way better than a priest after Aaron. Let's pray.